welcome to National Review's Capital Record. I'm your host, David Bonson, and I am bringing you today an uh, absolute thrill of an episode. Uh, first time guest, one of the uh, best selling authors in 2023. The book's continuing to move, uh, and it is a truly fantastic piece of writing. The name of the book, Number Go Up Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. And the author is Bloomberg Businessweek writer Zeke Fox. Now, Zeke has done the world a huge favor by writing the book that truly examines the utter insanity of the crypto bubble that gave way to a spectacular collapse, highlights the story of so many people that will end up now uh, spending a significant amount of their life, if not the rest of their life, in jail, and goes through just kind of the whole story, what he came to find out when he went embarked on a journey to figure out what this was all about and was there a real viable story. So I'm going to bring Zeke on now. We're going to have a conversation and then I'm going to come back uh, at the end to make some closing comments. Let's get into it. So with that said, allow me to welcome a first time guest. I believe it's our first first time guest of 2024 to uh, National Review's Capital Record. Zeke, welcome to Capital Record. Thanks a lot, David. So uh, I mentioned in the intro, we are definitely going to put the um, link for the book in the show notes. Uh, it is an absolutely wild book. I've had authors of books on the podcast quite a bit, but very rarely do I hype it up like this. I cannot say enough about how much I loved reading this book and how difficult it was to put down. It was one of those books that um, I think is the ultimate compliment for a sort of business nonfiction, you know, uh, walking through real life stories that it reads like a fiction book um, in terms of how, how compelling and interesting it was. Maybe tell listeners a little bit about what motivated you to write this book. Well, thanks. Um Ever since I was a kid, I always loved these kind of nonfiction adventure books. Like I loved uh, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer about the disaster on Mount Everest. And I've been working as an investigative reporter on, on Wall Street for like 10, 15 years now. And I just, I never came across the right story. And I was even skeptical of crypto. It wasn't like I immediately thought crypto was was a story for me. I kind of thought, oh, this is too silly. This isn't even worthy of uh, an investigative reporter's attention. But once I dove in, I realized that I was like, oh, this area has so many crazy characters, so many weird schemes to unravel. This is actually like a great topic for me. And... I feel lucky now that I was there observing, hanging out with all of these weirdos during this two-year boom that I think will really never be equaled. Uh, that very last sentence, I think, concerns me. For, for those of us that um, ha have worked in finance long enough, it does seem that human nature... Uh, has a lot of incentives to always one up the last uh, period of grift and 
and and uh, as you say, kind of craziness. But but you're right. This one does seem to be at a, a elevated level. Um, I just have a lot of confidence in humanity's ability <laughs> to to top itself. Um, so one of the things I want to get into is Sam Bankman Fried and, and that kind of stuff. But I sort of want to start um, X. SBF, because I think your book has a lot in it that is not about FTX and, and, and Sam particularly. And there's been more press coverage of that story. And now, of course, his uh, subsequent conviction and, and incarceration uh, than almost any other crypto related story. But your book goes into other stories and other illustrations. And you talk about crazy characters in the plural um, I worried a little bit before your book came out that this period in 2022 into 23, and really it was years in the making before 22, it would be remembered as a single bad actor. Sort of like if the financial crisis had been only remembered for Lehman, which, which is now most certainly not the case, and we know it is a much more holistic incident. But I think the SBF thing got so much oxygen that there's a risk of people believing this was a single bad actor. Your reporting indicates it was by no means a single bad actor. I mean, definitely the crypto industry would love to portray this as, you know, a bad apple. And they'd say, oh, you know, FTX was a fraud. Now we've, we've cleaned up the industry and going forward, we can focus on, you know, the real innovation. And what I found really was that I spent two years traveling the world, pretty much always asking the same question to all these crypto guys, which was, what is your product? Can I see how it's being used? Can I meet your users? Like, what does it do? And pretty much no one could ever answer this question. And when I did most people would say, oh, the product doesn't exist yet. Uh, or, you know, it's just early stages. And then a few cases where I could find the product in use, I saw like, you know, terrible things happening all around the world. Um, I mean, my one of my favorite examples is Axie Infinity. It was uh, the crypto guys, there's this, in crypto, people just, they love to hype something up. They'll all talk about it. And then um, once it fails, it's, it's memory hold. Um, but for a while, Axie Infinity was like the hot thing in crypto, the hot thing in Web3. And it was this game that was kind of like a knockoff of Pokemon. And what made it crypto was that you, you needed a team of monsters to compete and you had to buy your team of monsters using crypto. And that when they battled, you would earn smooth love potions. And like, why would you want smooth love potions? Well, you could sell those to get your monsters. Why do you want monsters to get smooth love potions? I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, but well, if it was all if it was all twelve year olds, right? Maybe it makes sense. But you're talking about grown adults. Yes, grown adults who are saying things like, "This is going to cure poverty worldwide. This is the future of work. This is a new (laughs) paradigm for the internet." and in the Philippines, it actually, I mean, the thing is, pyramid schemes, there's a lot of appeal. While, while things are going great, they seem awesome. 
And in the Philippines, this Axie Infinity game really took off. It became like a national news story. It was a craze. People were quitting their jobs. More than a million people were playing. And the people who were getting into this, they didn't think it was a game. I mean, I saw, so I went over there and spoke to people who got into this who had, you know, taken out big loans, who'd, uh, you know, cashed in their life savings to buy these crypto monsters and to try to earn smooth love potions. And of course it all collapsed. And, but I mean, this game was endorsed by uh, Mark Cuban, who's been a big uh, crypto guy. The company that started it had big funding from Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital firm that funded quite a lot of crypto startups. And it was like hailed as the number one example of Web3 and why this was all going to be our future. And then once, once it failed, it was just like, oh, let's not talk about it. And if you go and look at, uh, like FTX was a scam because it was an exchange where it, what made it, what Sam Bankman Free did was people were just sending money to his exchange and then he was stealing that money and, you know, going to gamble with it on other stuff. But it, setting that aside, if you go look at FTX and all the things that you could trade on FTX, a lot of those things were scams too, like these smooth love potions. So it's like, uh, and, and people in the industry would admit this. They'd say to you, oh yeah, like a lot of it is scams, but, uh, but mine is great. You know, I'm not like those other guys. You know, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Um, including from people who are now in jail. <laughs> it, would, it would seem to me that the phrase smooth love potion, not connected to crypto, has an extremely high chance of being a scam. And then when you blend it together with crypto, you just uh, have mixed up a really dangerous meatloaf. Um, I, I, I am speechless at the, at the entire thing. But you, you make an important point, and I think it, it is a constant through the book and through this, this story we've gone through, the institutionalization of some of these things that otherwise would just cause a guy like me to be laughing. I mean, you're talking about video games. I joke, but not really. Like, it sounds like some shenanigans a few 12-year-olds with, you know, with a computer would kind of make up, and yet... Andreessen Horowitz, one of the most credible venture capital players in the world, Mark Cuban, a very well-known, yes, a celebrity and TV star, but a significant multi-billionaire investor. There was a sort of credibility provided by the institutionalization of this, and it doesn't appear that it ever warranted um, any, uh, any fraction of the credibility it was given. Yeah, and I'm, I know some people are going to be listening to this now. And they're going to be saying, hey, what about my coin? I mean, like, take uh, Solana is a popular coin. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how much it's up this year, but I think it's a lot. Um, I mean, there's been a real comeback in, in a lot of these coins, not just, uh, not just Bitcoin. And it's enough to make you question yourself, even as a skeptic, and say, there must be something to this. Is it, why would so much money be going in? if there was no point to it all. And what I'm here to say is that I can't exactly tell you why, but there is no point to it all. Like I have tried to look into what is behind all of this 
and I, I failed to find it. And even uh, even these days, I'll see the crypto guys talking about uh, talking about it on Twitter, and they're like, uh, I saw someone the other day who was like, "Really, more Ponzi schemes? Haven't we come up with anything good yet?" And it's like, um, "No, but you know, I guess Ponzi schemes are a lot of fun while the while the going is good. It's kind of like a new form of gambling where you kind of know what the game is." And you get it. You think that you can get in on it early, and you can make a lot of money and get out while the getting is good. Um, I mean, at at this when I got into crypto at first, one of the things that fascinated me was, or but rather more than fascinated, kind of annoyed me was Dogecoin, um, and like this was a coin. Nobody claimed it did anything. It was just a picture of a dog, and it's kind of a joke. And it was like, hey, this dog is funny. Invest in Dogecoin because the dog is funny. And then laugh at it really hard to try to get your friends in on this joke too and get them to invest and the coin will go up. And, you know, I had this friend who was, who was telling me I should do it. And I was like, I know about finance. This is the worst idea ever. It'll never work. Uh, and he was right. And he, he got a, uh, you know, made thousands of dollars and, went to Disney World and was teasing me about it. Um, and I was kind of asking myself, is this what, like all of this whole crypto world can't really just be built around buy my silly coin and we'll all get rich. But I feel like the more I looked into it, the more I found that that, uh, that was kind of the point. It would, when I, towards the end of the book, I'm with Sam Bankman fried like a week before he got arrested in the Bahamas at his, at his penthouse. And I realized that Bankman fried himself, like with this stolen money, among the many things he was gambling on was Dogecoin. Like the guy who I thought was, cause I was, I was fooled by SBF too. The guy who I thought was like one of the more credible players in this very sketchy industry was just doing the same you know silly investment strategy as uh as the friend who had been taunting me when i before i knew about all any of this this is a message from our friends at american habits from the state policy network we the people do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. Do you think that... Um when you talk about the kind of interesting cast of characters, the craziness there is, I guess that, that there's a question I have as someone who has studied past tulip manias. Okay. The, the for listeners, the expression we use in finance a lot, 
going back to the, the tulip bulbs uh, in Holland in 16th, 17th century. That was one of the first examples of a, spe a financial speculation and mania that ended with blood and, and tears. Um, and, and over in the 20th century in particular, um, my uh, career started in the 1990s. So living through the dot-com moment, I studied at great length the um, Japanese real estate boom of the late 80s. Uh, and then, and then, you know, even silly things like Beanie Babies in, in 1998, which I think is um, remarkably useful in this much larger case with crypto, because even then people said, what if, if this is such a joke, why are these things worth so much? Much like your point of people referring to, to Solana or MyCoin now. Um, and then we're all familiar in more modern history, even people that join, maybe that are more Gen Y or Gen Z than an old Gen Xer like me, um, the Vegas uh, condos in 2006 and, uh, and the Florida, you know, real estate and all the things that blew up spectacular in 2008. There's a part of me that thinks that that's all this is, is just another of many, many, many examples of, you know, a bad side of human nature, greed leading to a euphoria that leads to just total irrational speculation. But you mentioned these crazy characters, and there does seem to me to be more of a distinct sociology. For one thing, SBF was a brilliant guy. He was educated. Uh, many of the others, too, they, they possess a certain libertarian strand. There's a kind of Silicon Valley attitude and and technological uh, often intelligence connected to a, just a view of society um, that then I think mi is mixed together for a really interesting potpourri. It doesn't change your point at all of the ultimate nothingness to the investment product, but I'm just wondering what your kind of analysis of this is in the final moment. Are we really talking about another just speculative mania or are we talking about something that is more unique in the sociology behind it? Well, in terms of historical parallels, I like to think a lot about uh, penny stock scams. And, you know, if you're not as if the list, if you're not familiar with these, I mean, essentially you got some guy, a stock promoter who have some company that is really, you know, nothing but a sheet of paper and they come up with some, with a story and they say like oh we've bought this uh gold mine and we we're, it's unpro unproven but there's huge reserves in this area and we think it's gonna we're likely to you know strike gold and they hype up this stock and people buy it and the stock goes up and i think like one of the keys i learned with penny stock scams is like the structure is always kind of similar but the story changes. You need a story that works for the modern audience. So like when COVID hit, it was all, uh, you know, this is a cure for COVID or this is like some COVID testing that we're going to make lots of money on. And I, so I see crypto as kind of like a new story. And it's a really powerful story because that appeals to all sorts of different people for different reasons. So... Essentially, the story is like, this is the future of money. And something that's the future of money is obviously going to be very valuable. And 
for some people, they sell it as this is a way to rebel against the system. And it's like whatever the old financial system is broken and this is our way to fight back. Um, and that can be very appealing. A lot of the Bitcoiners really, really go for that. Um, and with the Bitcoin, a lot of the Bitcoiners, they use a lot of the arguments that appeal to like gold bugs as well, um, where they're saying like, this is the hard asset. There can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Um, and, but the future of money can also appeal to like, as we were saying, like venture capitalists, where you're like, this is, uh, uh, you know, look how fast my startup is growing. We're going to hit like on this pace, we'll hit like a billion users within a couple of years. And no one's asking like, what are the incentives that are making your user growth look so good? Um, but I don't see it as like, I do think it's, it is kind of similar to past bubbles, just with a more powerful story uh, and one that clearly still has a lot of appeal. But I think I think that one area you've delved into, and there was an article you'd written in the New Yorker that got into this a little bit. Um, the penny stock scams didn't really have celebrity endorsement. Dot com did to some degree. We got into the Super Bowl commercials, and in the late '90s, you started getting, you know, NBA athletes and Hollywood stars doing little E Trade or TD Ameritrade type commercials. I think it gave a whole second career to uh, to the guy from Law and Order. You know, the the Jack McCoy of Law and Order became a spokesman for one of these online trading things and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so there's been these other uh, uh, situations that propel themselves because of a story. And penny stocks are a great analogy. And then they blow up when uh, eventually the nothingness is revealed. But in this case, I think you, one notable uh, uh, differentiating factor is the caliber of the celebrities that were drawn into this. Maybe talk a little bit about what you learned in that whole deal. Yeah. I mean, the 2022 Super Bowl had, I think, four or five ads for different crypto exchanges. And... I mean, when you think about like a exchange, it's really not the most complicated business, right? So this is very high margin and they had a lot of money left over for advertising, um, especially if you were SBF and you were stealing the customer money, um, extremely high margin and lots for advertising. <laughs> so we had uh, LeBron James doing a crypto ad, uh, SBF hired... Larry David, who really got off easy because he did sort of a sarcastic ad for FTX, where in which he never said, go to FTX. In fact, the idea of the ad was that he was like a time-traveling skeptic who scoffed at the Walkman, the wheel, uh, the Declaration of Independence. And then he came to the end and they were like, what do you think about FTX? And Larry David was like, nah, not going to do it. Um, the idea being that everyone's going for like FOMO 
if if you don't get in it on crypto, you're really going to be kicking yourself. Um, and you're kind of a loser, you know, like if you're a real man, you'll go and uh, invest in crypto. I mean, there's this great one, not a Super Bowl ad, but it got a lot of play with uh, Matt Damon for Crypto.com, where he sort of, he strolls through this room full of bold explorers, um, mountain climbers, uh, sailors, astronauts. And then he says, fortune favors the brave, and stares off at the crypto.com logo. And like n- nobody's selling it based off any uh, real characteristics, but just this idea that, yeah, you're missing out if you don't do it. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the celebrity aspect just came about because these guys had so much money to spend. You know, like, I think, I don't know that these, that Matt Damon is really that, uh, well, clearly he didn't evaluate this that much before deciding to do it. Uh, I think it's come out that he got paid $5 million. Um, I think he said that he gave it to charity. Um, Larry David, I think, got 10 or more. Um, And Tom Brady, who is an FTX ambassador, him and uh, his ex-wife Giselle split, I believe, sixty million dollars for a couple couple ads, like a very low amount of their time. Um, so, but this was, uh, even though there was a large portion of the population who was always skeptical of crypto, like this had gone mainstream, like it was legitimate enough that it didn't look too embarrassing maybe a little embarrassing for these guys to to take this money um and i was asking myself at the time even though i was didn't i had no inkling that sbf was running a scam i was like why is he spending so much money on these celebrity endorsements and i think the reason was it doesn't quite there's no like I think he was thinking, hey, if if the DOJ is going to go after some crypto company, will they go after like the weird Chinese one or will they go after the like nice curly haired nerd guy who's friends with Larry David and Tom Brady? Like probably they'll go after the other guy. So, well, so in other words, you think maybe the celebrity strategy was uh, adjacent to the political strategy where the, there was an awful lot of um of uh, donations and and reasonably bipartisan as well, not merely just the the center left or Democratic Party, but there was a fair amount of giving uh, to the right too, and that's been largely alleged to be somewhat connected to hoping to kind of um, cred- provide credibility uh, and and cause some form of institutional bias against looking under the hood because the presumption would be that it was a more uh, reasonable, upstanding entity if it had this type of political connectivity. Perhaps Larry David and Matt Damon, in that sense, are not all that different from Maxine Waters and and various committee people. I, yes, and I think that if when you go to Capitol Hill and if you're the crypto guy who has a patch on every MLB umpire's jersey that says FTX, 
that's going to help you get a meeting with the the people, the congressman that you want to meet, even if there's no real reason why it should. I think because on Capitol Hill, even now, I think there's this attitude where they're like, we don't want to kill this industry. This is a source of innovation. These are like, do we really want this to only happen in other countries? Um, and that they're, everyone was sort of looking for like the legit crypto person that they could get behind. Because they're like, there's got to be something there. We know a lot of it is sketchy. And so SBF kind of figured out how to present himself as that legit guy that like everyone was waiting for. Yeah, and he told me, which I think is uh, uh, kind of funny, but perhaps true. Um, he was like, when I started looking into politics, I, I realized there's actually not that much money in politics. Like you would think that it's like a great, great bang for your buck. Um, Cause he, he gave around the, I'm rounding here, but maybe a hundred million total and maybe like 60 or 70 of that to Democrats. Um, so, and, but yeah, when you, especially when you're an industry like crypto, whose future totally depends on its regulatory treatment, um, Maybe that's that's not that much money for you. Uh, well, yeah. If you don't if you don't steal your customer money and you don't end up going to jail for fraud, if what you are doing is something that needs some regulatory stamp of approval, um, and there isn't customer money theft, I would think a hundred million would prove to be a small amount to pay if it is going to get the SEC off of you and provide some legitimacy to an exchange that's buying Dogecoin that doesn't require proper tax treatment, that doesn't require um, rules on margin hypothecation like a stock exchange would. I mean, there's all kinds of regulatory privileges that could have been given out. They just never got to the point yeah. because, you know, that whole stealing $8 billion from your customers thing sort of got, yes. <laughs> got and, in the way. Um, Coinbase... <laughs> Like the which has never been accused of taking customer money or anything like that. Um, it it's got sued by the SEC um, after the FTX collapse, and this lawsuit, I mean, threatens its entire business. Like the SEC um, was because at the center of a lot of crypto is that the crypto industry maintains that these coins are not securities. Therefore, they don't need to be regulated like securities. They don't have the same disclosure requirements. You don't need to file an S1 form before you sell them to the public. And like the whole, the cat, this has happened. Like huge amounts of money have been trading hands in crypto without these security registrations. And the SEC came in arguably pretty late and was like, hey, we think a bunch of these are securities and therefore like your securities exchange and a lot of what you're doing um, is not allowed. So like, set, like you said, setting aside the stealing the money part, FTX would have been uh, at risk of like this type of lawsuit, which is, and that was sort of why I thought that SBF was spending so much to be cool with celebrities, to lobby in DC. Um, and especially because 
I think if he had lobbied correctly, he could have gotten some rules in place that were that he could comply with, but that other people might have more like Binance, his biggest rival would have had more difficulty uh, complying with. So that's what I thought his game was not getting away with, you know, one of the biggest scams in scam history. Do, do you, are you sympathetic to the argument that a lot of Bitcoiners make that there's two things that have to be talked about separately? There's the sort of crypto world of shadiness, of uh, sometimes grift and fraud, of criminality, of juvenile players, of pyramid scheme-like business models. And then there's Bitcoin, which is in and of itself a legitimate future medium of exchange that will take the world by storm. And it is not in the same category of all of these different players. And they offer up different arguments as to why they believe there to be more um, credibility and and gravitas to to Bitcoin versus crypto X Bitcoin. Are you sympathetic to that argument? Um, no, and I will I will tell you why. Um, the Bitcoiners are actually the the craziest of all <laughs> the people in crypto, and I okay, like first off. These Wall Street people that are getting into Bitcoin, they are not actually that's that's not the they're not really getting into Bitcoin. They're just saying, hey, like BlackRock is saying, hey, you know what? For like 10 years, a lot of people have wanted to buy Bitcoin. They've been buying Bitcoin. How do we get a percent of that? Um, And they're saying so they're offering by offering this Bitcoin ETF. They're not really endorsing Bitcoin. They're just saying. It seems like people want it, and maybe we can make some money off those people. Um, so then, now, but I should I should point out as a Wall Street guy because you make an incredibly important point. But I want listeners to understand this: Th- this is not anything profound or new or mysterious or a creative theory of the case that Zeke is making here. This is standard Wall Street. They are, and nothing wrong with it. They're meeting a demand. There's a bunch of people that want to do something. I happen to think it's stupid. And, and BlackRock is, is extremely willing to make money off of other people doing a stupid thing. And if anything, it's sort of a prerequisite service. In that if you're going to be that broad of an asset manager, you have to have all the different things on the menu. I, I don't get it, why, that would, uh, why people would confuse that with them believing it to be a viable future. Yeah, so... Then you got like two main Bitcoin arguments. One is uh, means of exchange. And yeah. this has honestly been, even the Bitcoiners are not even promoting this so much anymore. But uh, it's very slow, it's expensive. And one of the only places that has tried to make Bitcoin a real means of exchange is the country of El Salvador, where the president declared uh, it to be legal tender. And, you know, I went down there and checked it out and nobody is using Bitcoin for anything. And in fact, people are so sick of Bitcoin that I saw a lot of stores that would put up, I saw a a lot of stores, I'd go in there and I'd say, uh, puedo pagar con Bitcoin. And people would tell me like, 
oh, the Bitcoin machine is broken. Oh, it's on the manager's phone, but like he's having a smoke break. Like honestly, anything to avoid the annoyance of trying to use uh, Bitcoin. And so, but it weirdly, the Bitcoiners still hold this up as a as a success. Like they're just so divorced from any the reality of what's happening. Um, El Salvador, you could imagine it being good for remittances, and El Salvador tried to encourage that. Like the people have spoken, something like only one percent of remittances are done with El Salvador's Bitcoin system. It's just like there's no interest in it. Um, so that leaves the uh, like new replacement for gold argument. And that argument is that there are only ever 21 million Bitcoins that can be created. And therefore, they will be valuable because, uh, and the, the Bitcoiners like to talk about how all the central banks around the world are printing lots of money. Um, and I even had one particularly enthusiastic Bitcoiner he compared uh, Bitcoin to a ruler, and he was like, uh, the, the Bitcoin ruler is just sort of measuring how much money the central banks are printing. So as they print more money, uh, Bitcoin will necessarily become more valuable. And like a lot of smarter people than me have uh, made arguments against the gold standard or against... Uh, uh, but. I will just say I prefer maybe the sillier argument. Um, there, I, I believe that only 21 million original VHS copies of the movie Toy Story were ever created. And VHSs are now obsolete. The factories have been destroyed. No one will ever make more VHSs of Toy Story. Probably a lot of those have been destroyed or lost because people don't even... Uh, save their VHSs anymore. So, like, why won't those become more valuable as uh, uh, governments, you know, print more money? Um, now, but the argument, the argument that scarcity in and of itself creates intrinsic value, is not an argument that people use with anything else. To your point, the Toy Story VHS example. Um, I earlier alluded to uh, the Beanie Baby argument. Um, I think. The problem with the Toy Story VHS analogy and the Beanie Baby is I think those two things actually do have more intrinsic value. Well, I mean, there is some <laughs> utility, uh, you know, at some level. Someone's got a VCR. Someone wants to cuddle with a Beanie Baby. There's no intrinsic value with Bitcoin. It's actually better in crypto to have no utility because once you start having some utility, then you can like measure the utility and you can put a price on it. But if you're just like, this is the future of money, then of course its value is very, very high and it's hard to measure. Um, and a, a sort of less snarky argument against Bitcoin is they say there could only be 21 million Bitcoins like that, as far as I know, is true. But people keep inventing new cryptocurrencies, some of right. which in many ways are superior to Bitcoin. So yeah. even if you really like the idea of crypto, why would this one necessarily be the winner? Now, I, I would say flip side, like this whole cult has risen up uh, around Bitcoin. And like if you go to this, these Bitcoin conferences, people are crazy for Bitcoin. Like they will, like I've seen people literally cry when they were just thinking about how great Bitcoin is. 
and they say it's gonna like save the world. It's gonna be. Uh, it's gonna end. Uh, it's gonna end poverty. Um, and I think there's so many true believers that I don't think this is about to like die out tomorrow. Like I would not go out and short Bitcoin. And I find it kind of hard to predict where the uh, where the price will go. Um, but we with the ETF. Um, it was kind of amazing to see how much people talked about the coming of the Bitcoin ETF. It was just like, who cares? But it, people talked about it constantly for a few months. And the price really did go up a lot during all of that uh, ETF talk. Um, but um, the, the, the big Bitcoiners said once the ETF was approved, the price would then skyrocket, which has not happened. It's been like kind of well, flat. Yeah, it's, down, it's down six or seven thousand dollars since then. I think I think that um that you're exactly right. There's not um for for a skeptic, I don't think there's a need to time a prediction of demise. It's more to point out that the factors that drive it um are unsustainable and and speculation by definition um it, when it's a, it, it's classic greater fool theory when when something um is reliant upon the generosity of foolish people. Uh, there's a lot of generosity and a lot of foolish people, but they don't generally end well in history. And I think I think that in this case, it being attached to the passion it's attached to does probably mean it's a worse ending than Beanie Babies and other other you know silly manias of the past. But um, there's a sort of political component. I would like to get your take. Um, obviously, you're such an expert in this field from your own research and authorship. I've had a theory for some time that I call the Bitcoin conundrum, which is essentially that there is one of two arguments for um, Bitcoin and, and they undermine each other. That, and what I mean by this is that on one hand, you will hear people say this is the future. It disintermediates government. It allows people to get removed from the monetary system where the central bank does some reckless things and it becomes this sort of what you said, what did you call it? The future of money position. And that embedded in that um, assumption is to me an outcome whereby they will crush it like a bug. That if that was really the case, the Treasury Department, the State Department, the Federal Reserve, the people with the guns, the people with the power, the people with the Constitution, Congress with the power to mint, that they have the ability to regulate this thing away and destroy it. But then the Bitcoiners' response to that is, no, it can't be because it can be so underground and 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 they uh, can never you know take away our Bitcoin, sort of the old gold bug argument, you know, in the, in the old days of, well, bury it in the backyard kind of deal. So it seems to me that either the argument is wide penetration, wide uh, medium of exchange exchange and societal acceptance and utility, and, and that that invites a government involvement that then switches the Bitcoiner apologetic to, the, and that's hence the conundrum, to then being this sort of rogue underground security blanket, and that those two things cannot both be the case. It's it's one or the other. Do you think the conundrum I describe is is legitimate? Yes, I think that is a pretty good point, and i i would 
I would add, like, when I would sit there and listen to these Bitcoiners describe their visions of the future, I, sometimes I would think, um, for example, like the Winklevoss twins are big holders of Bitcoin. And if the price of Bitcoin were to go to, you know, millions of dollars or whatever, as its biggest proponents say, um, would these guys then be like the kings of the world? And we would all be, you know, working for them, trying to get our sats, which is the word for like a, you know, fraction of a Bitcoin. Um, I, wouldn't we maybe uh, we would be moved to take up arms against these Bitcoin yeah. overlords? Um, and who's to say that these Bitcoin people would be more fair than our, you know, the powerful oligarchs and uh, politicians who are like running the world today. Um, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like they've thought it all through. Yes, I think that's a fair thing to say. Um, Zeke, I promised you uh, that we'd, we'd be done about this time. And so I really do want to thank you for the book and of course your time here today. Um, like I said, we're going to put the, the book in the show notes but I'd love to keep up the communication. I appreciate the fact that we're so like-minded on this subject and that yours is a really thoughtful and, and, and a cogent uh, approach that you did the investigative journalistic homework to come to the conclusions you did. Um, I, I welcome further dialogue and, and thank you for writing such a fantastic book. Thanks a lot, David. Fun talking with you. You know, I'm going to struggle with this one to come up with the name of the podcast. I generally, in the midst of the interview, get inspired by something that is said or discussed and try to turn it into a little bit of copy. Um, and in this case, there were, so, there were so many possibilities there. Uh, I, I, I don't even know where to go. I want to close out, though, as a guy who does this podcast because I have such strong feelings about human nature, about the human person, about the importance of rooting economics to our beliefs about the human person. And really this dovetails into my uh, career in, in investment finance, which is inherently behavioral. That, um, that issue about FOMO, fear of missing out, and running Super Bowl commercials with Larry David to strike at the known phenomena of FOMO to hit people where it hurts that you are an idiot for missing out on something. This is not something people need to do if the underlying product is real and credible and sustainable. You can make a case that everyone's going to love my candy bar and then they're either going to love it or not love it. And you could be wrong um, and, of course, the consumer preference could end up being right, and you end up with uh, a consumer product that stands the test of time. But there isn't a reason to scare people into saying, you have to do it now. And the reason it is done is because it is intrinsically a greater fool theory product. The money is made off of the belief that there will be someone else dumber than you who will pay more for it later, and that is your exit strategy. This is a national and global embarrassment that we've been living through, and it is never going to get the adoption and utility that its advocates have formerly said, and as Zeke pointed out, they don't even bother making that argument anymore.
there is an intense passion that serves as a good bid underneath the price, at least of Bitcoin now. But the notion of this crypto tokenization uh, that has led to all of these exchanges and story after story that he again pointed out, get memory hold in the course of their just utter fraud and grift and corruption. I am mortified, but I am not surprised. I'm disappointed, but I'm not shocked because I have a view of total depravity that makes this completely consistent with my theological framework of the world. What I do hope is that we will learn from it. We will avoid things that are intrinsically FOMO-ish and that we will understand that the notion of a get-rich-quick thing um, is not the type of thing that is going to bring us the results we want in a free and virtuous society. Now, hey, somebody can get in with something that has no intrinsic value at a low price and get out at a high price, and then they have done something that was very profitable. And, of course, they did it by participating in conventional financial system. And the money is then monetized into dollars or the currency they live in and reinvested into real estate or stocks or other activities where it's consumed in the normal world. It's not Web 3.0. It's not an alternative universe. It's just simply someone who was on the winning side of the greater fool theory. Um, it actually kind of makes Bernie Madoff not look so bad. In the end, uh, there is a lot more pain and misery in this environment than, than Bernie. So be that as it may, Zeke has written a phenomenal book. I hope you'll check it out. Number go up. I really appreciate his time. And I uh, thank you for listening to National Review's Capital Record. I look forward to coming back with you again next week. Take care. Thank you.